Today's reading is from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, thanks be to God for his word. Good morning, everybody. Please join me in prayer this morning. Um, Our Lord God, we look to you. We give our attention to you right now. We come into this space to worship, and we invite you into this space to Holy Spirit for you to be working in our hearts and in our lives. Um, I pray, God, that you would meet each of us where we are right now and through the power of your spirit that you would reveal to us who you are and that you would continue to change us and form us into the image of Jesus. We trust you for that. And again, just pray for you to be working in this time and in this space. Amen. Well, we're getting into our new series here in Acts called On Mission, where we're seeing God working through the apostles and through the church to kind of spread the gospel throughout the the world, and things are getting kind of weird already, right? Or maybe they were a little weird last week when we saw or heard about Jesus floating up into the clouds, but this week we've got flames of, uh, we've got uh, tongues that are on fire, and we've got the disciples speaking different languages that everybody else can understand. I mean, it was so weird that people thought that maybe they were drinking at that time. Well, good news is today is an experiential Sunday, and I've talked to the Holy Spirit, and I think we're going to be able to time this pretty well to get some flaming tongues in here right about the end of the sermon. Actually, if you're not overly familiar with the Bible, when you see things like this, it can kind of like have you take a back, taken aback a little bit to, to read about this kind of account. Like, why did this happen? Did this really happen? Did it happen in this way? And, and why is it so? I want to try and answer some of those questions today, but I also just want to say that in the book of Acts, we kind of have to get used to it. We should kind of, you know, have our frame of reference set up to understand that these are the types of things that are going to be happening. Because the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is one of the main things that Luke is trying to get across. 
The Holy Spirit is like a main character in his entire story. So in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke is writing that Gospel, he's showing that Jesus is operating with the power of the Holy Spirit. And now that Jesus is gone, his church in the book of Acts is going to be operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see again and again that the Holy Spirit is one of the main characters in Luke's story that he's telling. And hopefully, not only will he not only be central to the story that Luke is telling, but he'll be central in our own lives as well. Ultimately, what I think that we'll see is that it takes the power of God, the power of the Spirit, in order to accomplish the work of God. That's true in the book of Acts through the church, and it's true in our own lives daily as well. Now, you and I, we can do all sorts of things. God made us in pretty incredible ways, but the most important things that we can do are the things that God is actually calling us to, and those things require the work of the Spirit to actually do them. So let me ask you a question. I'm looking for responses here. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Or what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Obedience? Yeah, it looks like maybe the Spirit working in our lives to bring about obedience. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Joy. joy. And we have the Spirit in us. The Spirit can uh, bring us joy by reminding us of the truths, of the promises that God has made for us. Yeah. Fruit of the Spirit and love. Love is obviously one of the fruit of the Spirit. So yes, I think when God, when the Holy Spirit is filling us, we are going to see more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the primary one that we are going to see is love. Absolutely. Common purpose. Common purpose. Yeah, so we're all working toward the same thing because we have one Spirit in us. We have the same Spirit in us. And that same Spirit is causing us to move in the same direction. Yeah, good. Reflection. Yeah, when we uh, have the Holy Spirit, we look in the mirror a lot more. No, I'm just joking. We don't. It's, we reflect more of who Jesus is, hopefully, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk more about what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come back to that. But first, let's talk about bottle rockets. Because uh, our, our kids, someone in our family, got our kids for Christmas an annual pass to OMSI. It is an awesome gift. If you have kids in your life anywhere and you want to get them a really great gift, you should get them an annual pass to OMSI. So we go to OMSI a lot. And if you go into the turbine hall, which is the really big hall with the big yellow cranes in it, when you first walk in there, there's kind of this bottle rocket setup. And basically, there's like a pool there, and then these two chutes uh, that the bottle rockets can go up. And there are these two-liter bottles that are kind of clamped down. When you put the lever down, it holds down the, the bottle, and then you have two little buttons that you can operate. One is to add water, and one is to add air. And if you get the ratio just right, when you release the lever, that bottle rocket goes shooting up on the track, right up into the air. I don't know how high it goes. It's probably like 30 or 40 feet or something like that. It was pretty high up in the air. 
Well, there are two of those bottle rockets at OMSI, and one of them has not worked for months. So one of them, everybody stands up and lines up at, and they sit there, and they you know, do the whole thing. They add the water, they add the air, and then they release the lever, and the bottle rocket shoots up into the air. And then the other one, people will go there, and they'll just try again and again and again. And they'll lock it down, they'll add the water, just the right amount of water, and then they'll push the button for the air, and you can see where it looks like maybe air is being added, but ultimately nothing happens. When you flip the, the switch to release the rocket, it either sits there or maybe it just kind of whoop, like just goes up just a little bit, and it doesn't matter. People just keep trying again and again and again. It's been broken for months, though, and without the air, it doesn't have the power to shoot up or to blast off. And it gets, uh, it gets like maybe a little way up sometimes, but it doesn't do what it really should do. Now, there's a pretty big contrast between those two rockets. One does what the operator wants it to do, and the other one, frustratingly, does not. It doesn't have the power to do what it needs to do without that air. That same kind of contrast is happening in the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts. In chapter 1, we see the disciples who are gathered for prayer, and that's really great. Then we see Peter starting to take some actions, and he makes kind of an interesting argument with some weird psalms there that Judas needs to be replaced. And so essentially they roll some dice, and they come up with Matthias as the new disciple. That's Peter operating on his own without the power of the Spirit, trying to make things happen. You could look at the results and you could be like, well, sure, that's, that's fine. But the rocket didn't really take off. Because Matthias, he's never mentioned again in the story. Ever. I mean, I'm sure he was a great guy, but he is not pivotal to the story at all. Contrast that with chapter 2 of Acts, and we see that rocket take off. Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit and he will give you power. Before he comes, the power isn't there. But when he arrives, he sends that rocket right through the roof. We're meant to see that contrast then between the actions that are taking place before the Spirit arrives and the actions that are taking place after the Spirit of, uh, arrives. It takes the power of the Spirit to accomplish the work of God. What Peter is doing beforehand isn't the work of God. The work of God is to testify about Jesus, to be his witnesses, and that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit testifies about Jesus. So when the Spirit comes and fills Peter, we see in the rest of chapter 2, he testifies about Jesus. Now, John talked about this a little bit last week, but it bears repeating. We think that Jesus left his church with a mission to do. That's what we see in Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are still called to that mission today, to be witnesses here in Portland and in Oregon, and I don't know, is California, Samaria? Maybe. I think so. And then to the ends of the earth. But when we try to do that on our own, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, 
we won't actually accomplish that mission. We, won't, uh, we don't want to be that kind of church that works out of its own wisdom and out of its own ris- uh, resources and strength. And the scary thing is we can do pretty well on our own, but I don't want to be a part of that. And I don't think that you do either. What we want to do is to daily rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us for the ministry that Jesus has called us to do. And that's not just collectively for us as a church, but for each one of you in your own lives. God has called you to be a part of his church, which means you're called to ministry and you're called to be a witness of Jesus. And you're able to do all sorts of things. But the most important things are the things that God is calling you to do to be a witness of him. And those things are are empowered by the Spirit which means that we should always have flaming tongues above our head all the time. Probably not, really. It's okay, don't worry. We don't need to have flaming tongues above our head all the time. God was actually doing something particular in this this instance. There's a special event in history that has a particular meaning to it. So when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, he gave them very very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, which is also called the tent of meeting, or just a little interesting note here for you, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the, tes- it's called the tent of testimony or witness, which is really an important phrase for us here in the book of Acts. Anyway, when they had finished constructing the tabernacle and Moses had prayed to dedicate it, the Bible says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. Elsewhere, that glory is described as a pillar of fire. It was the visual presence of God that people could see, the expression of that presence. Well, later on, Solomon, he builds a temple to replace the tabernacle. And it was a pretty fantastic temple. And after it was all constructed, when Solomon was praying over it and the sacrifices were made and everything was being dedicated for the temple, the Bible says, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. Very similar language about the power and the presence of God coming to his people. Well, that temple was destroyed when Israel was conquered by its enemies, the Babylonians. And when some of the Israelites came back from captivity, they built a second, not quite so impressive temple. And when it was finished and they were doing their sacrifices and they were praying to dedicate the temple, the Bible says nothing. (laughs) No cloud, no fire, no power and presence of God for hundreds of years. 
At Pentecost, when it says that a violent wind filled the house and that flames came down and rested on the people, it means that God's presence and his power had finally returned to the temple. But not to the temple building, but to these people over here. The church now is the place of the power and the presence of God, but not the church building either. It's in the people, the people who are witnesses of Jesus. That's for you and I if you're a follower of Jesus. We now carry the power and the presence of God in and among us. So God did something special at that time to signal that something new was happening. And that doesn't mean that it's always going to look that way for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I often want God to work in more dramatic ways. I want to see the visible evidence of his power. And that's something that we're going to have to wrestle with as we go through the book of Acts, because there are a lot of dramatic things that happen throughout the story as the gospel is moving out into new people and as the church is growing faster than Tom Cruise's net worth after Top Gun. Am I right? Now, sometimes the temptation is for us to try to uh, produce the same outcome or to control and manipulate what the Holy Spirit does without the power of the Spirit. We can't control the Holy Spirit, though, and the Holy Spirit is not someone to be manipulated. I mentioned a few weeks ago that um, we've been watching a lot of Star Wars lately. So we watched the Obi-Wan series, which was really great, after we watched episodes one, two, and three again. And then we watched episodes four, five, and six, and now we're on episode seven right now which makes you think that we watch a lot of TV, but I'm telling you, we really don't. This has taken us a while to get through there. I don't need to give you excuses. Anyway, we've been watching a lot of Star Wars. In Star Wars, power comes through what? The Force. The Force is impersonal and controllable by people, particularly those with a high midichlorian count. Anakin Skywalker, he's got the highest known midichlorian count, unfortunately. He turned to the dark side. The force is really good for things like drawing your lightsaber back to you when your enemy knocks it away, or pulling vents off of the walls and hurling them at your enemy, or extracting your crashed spaceship from a swamp, or jumping really high so that you can evade danger. These are the things that, a that the force can do. It's, it's what the person, it does what the person wants it to do, essentially to have power over other people. We like that. We like control. We like power. That's why we like the force. Any of you as a kid ever, like, try to utilize the force? Like, that remote control is sitting so far away from me. I'll try. Come to me, remote control. It doesn't work out. We like the force, though. But that's not how it is with the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is personal, a distinct person of the Trinity, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and elemental force. In Scripture, the Spirit is described as a unique, distinct person of the Trinity and not just the agency of power for the Father and the Son. As the Father is God, so the Son is God, so the Holy Spirit is God. Now, because the Holy Spirit is God, we can't control or manipulate the Spirit. Instead, we have to trust and submit to the Spirit. I can't actually schedule the Holy Spirit to bring flames of to bring tongues of flames here on us at this time. In contrast to the force, the Holy Spirit is really good for things like testifying about Jesus, allowing us to walk in righteousness, advocating and praying for us, leading us to truth, convicting us of our sin, forming our character to be like Jesus, guiding us in our lives, being the indwelling presence of God in our lives, and gifting and empowering the church for ministry. These are the things that God wants to do in our lives and through us in order to affect the world around us. But only the Spirit can do it. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. These are the daily realities of God that God is working in our lives. And it takes the power of the Spirit to accomplish the work of God. So that means that we need to recognize the work of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit in our lives and to daily be reliant on the Spirit. Now, the last thing that I mentioned in those list of things for the Spirit is that the Spirit gifts and empowers the church for ministry. This passage in Acts 2, where we see the disciples speaking in all these different languages, it may make you think about the gifts that the Spirit gives. And one of the key places where we learn about the gifts that the Spirit gives is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. If you're not familiar with that passage, or if you haven't read it in a while, I would encourage you to read it. This is where Paul writes, All the gifts are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. The Spirit of God equips us in the church as he desires for our common benefit. The gifts are given to individuals, but they are for the whole church. Sometimes we like the gifts that we get. Sometimes we like the gifts that somebody else gets. Sometimes we ask the question, like, why does Tom Brady, Tom Brady get all of the talent and the good looks? I don't know. When I was a kid, we didn't have a ton of money. And so um, for Christmas, for quite a while, we did this thing where only one kid out of the four of us, there were four of us, one child would get the nicer gift and everybody else would get something smaller. And we would rotate through the years who got the nicer gift. We just didn't have enough money for everybody to get a nice gift. So some years when my sibling was getting something nicer and I was getting something smaller, 
it would feel like maybe a little bit unfair, but I'm sure it like built character into me or, or something like that. My, the Christmas gifts, though, were for me. The gifts of the Spirit are for the benefit of the whole church. So when you get a nice gift, I benefit from that. My sister was not going to share her bomber jacket with me, though. Now, some of the gifts that the Spirit gives are called the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts. And it's worth talking about those right now because we're going to see a lot of those things throughout the whole book of Acts. These are gifts like prophecy, miraculous healing, or speaking in tongues, which is speaking in another language. It's a little bit different than what we see in Acts chapter 2 because, again, Acts chapter 2 is a totally unique event where uh, the disciples are speaking in languages that other people can understand. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that speaking in tongues is when uh, nobody understands them but God, not even the person who's speaking. So it's not a human language. Some people call it a heavenly language. We call these the sign gifts because just like Jesus did signs and wonders that showed that he was the divine son of God, the Messiah, These gifts are a sign of the power and presence of God in the midst of his church through the Holy Spirit. Now, the sign gifts are kind of interesting things for us to talk about, particularly in our stream of Christianity, because I think that for a lot of us, there's something that intrigues us, and yet we don't necessarily know exactly what to do with them. It's kind of like like an infant that you put in like grass or sand, for the first time, and they don't, they're like, what is this? This is really, I don't know exactly what to do with this. We tend to distort the idea of these gifts in a couple of different ways. One, we either say, oh, that's Bible times. That happened back then, and it doesn't happen anymore. Or two, we say, that's for the super spiritual. This is like next level in our relationship with God. Now, the temptation to dismiss these gifts goes back to our history, all the way back to the Enlightenment. Our primary assumption in Western culture is to look toward natural law to determine our reality. The miraculous is something that's outside of natural law. Therefore, the miraculous doesn't happen. It's common, even in the church, to think this way because we're so steeped in that kind of thought process in our culture. And for the most part, we experience God as far away and that our lives are still just taking a natural course based on our circumstances or based on our our surrounding environment. We believe in God, we pray, we read our Bibles, but we don't necessarily expect God to move in a dramatic way in our lives. The assumption in the Bible, though, is that God does intervene in human history, God disrupts natural law, and God reveals himself through signs and wonders. He doesn't always do that, and he doesn't always do it in the same way, but the Bible assumes that there is more to reality than just natural law. History tells us this as well. People throughout the centuries have attested to the miraculous. 
And even today, hundreds of millions of people say that they have witnessed the miraculous. And in Acts 2, the people say, what does this mean? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit continues to work in the church, pointing to Jesus. And this is particularly the case if you get outside of the Western world and go to the majority world and see the activity of the Spirit in a more prominent way. Now, we may be tempted to think that that happens because we in the West are more educated or more advanced in society, but that is a very ethnocentric way to view what is happening. And if there's anything that Acts 2 teaches us, it's that God is not working through just one culture, right? God is working through all cultures, and there's no one culture that has a corner on the truth of how God works. God is reaching beyond just one culture. More likely in the West, we don't see the miraculous as much because we don't need God as much because we are so well-resourced. We actually are desperately in need of God, but we don't rely on him desperately. And maybe if we did rely on him more desperately in our lives, we would see him acting more in those ways. These gifts still exist today. The Holy Spirit is gifting the church in all sorts of ways. And I actually want to show you some evidence of that. This is never before seen footage of John when he was a child being filled with the Holy Spirit at church. Check this out. Now, <clears throat> that video is hilarious. Now, if you know John, you know he has no musical talent at all. So that is clearly evidence of the Holy Spirit. Actually, I think that's a little girl in the video. Sorry, John. <laughs> so one of the ways that we distort the idea of these gifts is by thinking that they no longer happen, that the miraculous no longer happens. The other way is to think that there's something for the super spiritual people, as in their reward for being particularly holy. Now, first, the, the first thing to point out here is that everybody who is a follower of Jesus has the Spirit in them. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized. We're having baptisms this fall, by the way. If you want to be baptized, let me know. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, 
for all whom the Lord our God will call. It's, it's, it's for everyone regardless of where they're from. We certainly see that at Pentecost. And it's for every generation. When you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you are sealed with his spirit as a down payment for the promises that are in store for you. The nature of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives beyond that is nothing but grace. In fact, that's what the word gift in the Bible means. The word is charisma, and it comes from the word charis, which is the word for grace. That's what the gifts are. They're just a free gift, nothing but grace. When we make them something other than grace, that's when we're trying to control or manipulate the spirit. If I do A, B, C, X will happen. But that's not the way that it works. Why the Spirit does something more dramatic for some people and not for others, we can't say. But he distributes to each as he determines. I will say, though, in talking about this, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Which means that the Spirit isn't giving gifts based on merit or greatness, but it's actually the opposite of that for those who need it the most. There's something else that Paul says within that section. Paul says uh, that there's something more important than the sign gifts. He says, if I speak in tongues or I prophesy, or I'm really religious and I make great sacrifices for everybody around me, but I don't have love, I am nothing and I have nothing. The Holy Spirit is more concerned about who we are, our heart and our character, than about the things that we do. And just like everything else, that God is accomplishing, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and to make us more like Jesus. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit because it can't just be done by following rules. You and I and pretty much the rest of humanity isn't all that great at following rules for the most part. We need a changed heart. In Jewish tradition, the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, is associated with the time when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai and received the law from God through Moses. They were supposed to come to Mount Sinai to have a direct encounter with God, but right from the beginning, they disobeyed God and they asked for Moses to be their priest, to be their representative. And the more laws, the more rules that God gave them, the more they just couldn't keep them. But God said that there would be a day when he would write his law on the hearts of his people and that he would give them his spirit in order that they would be able to actually obey. So to be filled with the spirit in one sense is to allow the Holy Spirit to change who you are. The starting point for this change 
comes from a place of security. The Bible says that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When we have the security of knowing that we're attached to God as a child of God, we're no longer operating from a place of fear, but we're operating from that place of security and from a place of freedom. And within that secure place of freedom as a child of God, the Holy Spirit then can convict us of sin and lead us to truth. That is, the Holy Spirit can give us a sense that we're about to make a misstep and can bring to mind the scriptures that we've read. And then because we have the power of the Spirit in us, we're actually able to choose in that moment to do the right thing. Of course, we can also choose to ignore the Spirit. The Bible warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, which happens when we live by our own desires. Instead, we are to have the minds on, we're have to have our minds on the things that the Spirit desires. And this is a practice that we build up. So the more we make choices to ignore the voice of the Spirit and to gratify our own desires, the harder it is over time to hear the voice of the Spirit. That's why the Bible says, walk by the Spirit and you won't satisfy the desires of the flesh. Each step that we take with the Spirit makes us more like Jesus in our character. The more than we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's being filled with the Spirit. Now, sometimes maybe we get to experience a more dramatic filling of the Spirit, but the more important experience of the Spirit is to faithfully walk with the Spirit daily in life, allowing Him to change you while remaining a faithful witness of who Jesus is. God wants to do a work in your life. And that work is done by the power of the Spirit. So just a couple of things here. If you want more of the Spirit in your life, ask God for it. The Bible says to eagerly desire the things of the Spirit. Take time then to eagerly ask God for the things of the Spirit. And at the same time, consider what in your life is taking the place of the Spirit. The Bible says, don't be filled with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. This is an important lesson for us. There are things that we can fill our lives with that actually crowd out the Spirit in our lives. Now, we can't control the Spirit, but we can actually push him away out of our lives when we ignore him or when we fill our lives with other things. Like always looking after what are our accomplishments? What are the things, what are the things that we're trying to acquire in life? Who are the people in our lives that actually even just crowd out the Spirit sometimes? When that happens, 
We're kind of like the bottle rocket that doesn't quite get off the landing. It doesn't quite get off the ground. We're filled with something else other than the air, the power that is needed to get the rocket off the ground. But he's there. The Spirit is there, the Spirit is there with you right now, testifying to you that you are a child of God and wanting to be there actively working in your life daily, speaking to you, leading you to truth, convicting you of sin when you need to be convicted of that, but mostly just revealing to you how much you are loved and how much God wants to work through you, through his power, through the presence of his spirit in your life. Let's pray. We trust, uh, we trust God that you are present here with us right now with your spirit. I pray, God, um, yeah, that you would help us to understand better who you are as the Holy Spirit and how you're working in our lives each day. I pray for your grace, God, knowing that we need it every day and that you would help us to hear the voice of the Spirit saying that we are children of God. I pray, God, that you would bring about more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and that you'd help us to clear out the things that crowd out your spirit in our lives as well. We look to you and we love you. Amen.